This week, Havnanian changes direction and avoids a default. Windstream announces a new consent solicitation. More on this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest in top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Teresa Lee, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Mark Fisher sat down with distressed analyst Stephen Opper and senior covenant analyst Dan Nikolich to discuss trends in frontier communications and how the company might address its almost $18 billion capital structure. It's Sunday, June 3rd. A surprise announcement from Hvnanian on Wednesday that it would avoid default could bring months of litigation to an end. The company paid the overdue interest on its 8% notes, owned by subsidiary Sunrise Trail. The previously planned default was a component of a GSO-backed transaction that provided low-interest, long-dated bonds in exchange for the company's agreement to trigger an event of default, and, ostensibly, a CDS auction that would have potentially led to a large payout on GSO's nearly $350 million notional long position. The release stated that the parties, including Hovnanian and Solis, signed a stipulation of dismissal with prejudice that ends the case as to all parties. Hovnanian also announced that it redeemed the $66 million of notes not held by its subsidiary, proceeds of which were borrowed from the company's delayed draw term loan. The transaction was the topic of ISDA's determination committee, which rejected a general interest question relating to the manufactured defaults, but in so doing, issued a statement that, quote, narrowly tailored defaults designed to result in CDS payments that do not reflect the creditworthiness of the underlying corporate borrower could negatively impact the efficiency, reliability, and fairness of the overall CDS market. The board said that it had instructed ISDA staff to consult with market participants, quote, and advise the board on whether further amendments to the ISDA credit derivatives definitions should be considered. Separately, regulator CFTC had announced on April 24th that it was looking into manufactured defaults. On Wednesday, Windstream announced another consent solicitation, this time targeted at the company's newly issued 8.625% first lien notes. The company also said it was seeking amendments from its senior secured credit facility. The solicitation is scheduled to expire on June 5th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. The company issued a press release saying that the purpose of the consent solicitation is to obtain consents to permit the issuers and guarantors under the indenture to issue or incur indebtedness on a junior lien basis. The company said, quote, If the proposed amendments and the credit facility amendment become operative and effective, depending on market conditions, the company's liquidity needs, contractual limitations, and other factors, the company may explore various financing alternatives to improve our capital structure, including issuing new junior lien secured indebtedness in one or more series or tranches, or offering to exchange new junior lien secured indebtedness for one or more existing series of debt. On the company's first quarter earnings call, CFO Robert Gunderman said that management was considering a transaction similar to a second lien issuance recently completed by Frontier Communications. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Promesa Oversight Board certified the revised version of the Commonwealth Fiscal Plan on Wednesday, May 30th, but reiterated that its agreement with the government is contingent on the repeal of Law 80, Puerto Rico's Wrongful Dismissal Act, for current and new employees. A key part of the fiscal plan revision agreement between the board and the governor is the repeal of Law 80. 
The Senate also approved a Law 80 repeal on Wednesday, but amended the bill so that the repeal only applied to new jobs and the law's protections would continue for existing employees. A board spokesman said the amended bill is inconsistent with the understanding that was reached with the government. The revised fiscal plan contemplates a six-year surplus of $6.1 billion. On Wednesday, the Puerto Rico Senate also voted to approve an amended version of House Bill 1481, which aims to establish the legal and regulatory framework for the sale of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's assets and or their concession under public-private partnerships. The PREPA privatization bill approved by the Senate amends the administration's original bill, the version passed by the House earlier this month, and the version that emerged from the Senate Special Committee on Energy last week. The measure will now head back to the House. Mammoth Energy also announced this week that PREPA has awarded its subsidiary, Cobra Acquisitions, a one-year $900 million contract to complete the restoration of the critical electrical transmission and distribution system components damaged as a result of Hurricane Maria, as well as to support the initial phase of reconstruction of the electrical power system in Puerto Rico. PREPA previously awarded COBRA contracts totaling $945 million. And in the Title III cases, Judge Swain denied a request by the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees International Union, AFL-CIO, to compel compliance with the stipulation governing the Commonwealth COFINA dispute. Finding that the motion rested on a, quote, faulty legal premise, the court concluded that the stipulation does not constrain the ability of any other party in interest to participate in mediation or negotiation of any issues, nor does it constrain the general authorization of the mediation team to facilitate such efforts. The order also found that the motion lacked factual foundation to the extent that it was premised on speculation regarding activity in the confidential mediation setting. In Venezuela, adding to sanctions already in place, on Wednesday, the government of Canada imposed further sanctions on 14 government officials. In addition, citing, quote, information circulating in the legislature that Venezuelan companies with close ties to the government of Nicolas Maduro and Puerto Rican lobbyists have been monitoring the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority process on the island to try to enter it. Puerto Rico's House of Representatives on Thursday approved legislation that would bar the Commonwealth government and all of its instrumentalities from contracting with any company that has business ties to the Venezuelan government. Separately, in the PDVSA litigation trust dispute, on June 5th, a hearing on the defendant's motion for an order to show cause is scheduled to occur. The defendants moved for an order to show cause, directing the plaintiff, PDVSA U.S. litigation trust, to appear before the court and explain why it should not be held in contempt. The litigation trust was formed in July 2017 and established pursuant to the laws of New York for the specific purpose of investigating and pursuing recovery from parties involved in an alleged corruption scheme. Other top-read stories of the week were 1. Frontier Communications, cash flow generation, balance sheet maneuvers could alleviate path to 2022 maturities. 2. Ultra-Petroleum Tear Sheet. Ultra-Petroleum faces uncertain future from widening basis differential and inconsistent results in horizontal drilling program. 3. David's Bridal engages with lender and note holder advisors under NDAs to discuss options for capital structure. And now we'll pass it over to Angela Falasinos for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thanks, Teresa. The week ahead brings a flurry of activity during the first full week of June. 
Retailer Nine West begins the week with a bid deadline for the sale of the debtors Nine West and Bandolino assets and an auction to end the week on Friday. Another retailer, Toys R Us, is expected on Tuesday to file a qualified bids notice with the court with respect to Toys Delaware real estate assets. Restructuring milestones this week include an expiration of Windstream's consent solicitation with respect to its first lien notes on Tuesday and Concordia's early consent deadline in connection with its recapitalization transaction on Wednesday. Earnings releases and calls this week are scheduled from Algecko Scotsman, Feral Gas, Cons, and Havnanian. In court this coming week, disclosure statement hearings are scheduled in the Chapter 11 cases of VER Technologies and Senvio. In Senvio's Chapter 11, Monday would mark the investigation deadline, while an examiner report is expected on June 14th. On Thursday, a dip hearing is scheduled in the iHeart Chapter 11 cases. There are back-to-back hearings related to Puerto Rico's restructuring this week as well. On Tuesday, the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston will hear two oral arguments. The first, on Piaje Investments' appeal of Judge Laura Taylor Swain's September 2017 opinion, denying its request for preliminary injunction. The second oral argument in front of the First Circuit is on the appeal by the ad hoc group of prepper bondholders and several bond insurers of Judge Swain's September 14 opinion and order denying their motion seeking stay relief to commence an action to pursue the appointment of a receiver for PREPA. On Wednesday, Judge Swain will hold an omnibus hearing in the Title III cases. In Chancery Court on Monday, Vice Chancellor J. Travis Laster will preside over oral argument in a case brought by Legacy Reserve's preferred unit holder seeking to block the company's conversion from a master limited partnership to a C-Corp as a violation of Legacy's partnership agreement. Otherwise, omnibus hearings this coming week are also scheduled in the Chapter 11 cases of Nine West, First Energy, and Tops. Now this week, I leave you with some thoughts from Yankees legend Yogi Berra. You can observe a lot by just watching. Back to you, Teresa. Thanks, Angelo. And as always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now we'll turn it over to Mark Fisher, who's with our financial and covenant team, to discuss Frontier Communications. Thank you. So with me here today are Stephen Opper, distressed financial analyst, and Dan Niklich, senior covenant analyst. So Frontier uh, Communications, the company we're going to be talking about today, uh, has been a number of reports circulating about the company, most of which revolve around what the company plans to do to address their almost $18 billion capital structure. Uh, Like other fixed-line telecom companies, Frontier has seen a number of subscriber metrics deteriorate, which has led to declining cash flow. And at Frontier, the situation is exacerbated by the fact that they have a pretty nasty uh, maturity schedule in which um, at least $400 million uh, to a billion of debt comes due each and every year for the next um, few years. And actually, then it it, it balloons after that. Uh, So... Um, you know, we are, as also learned uh, that the company has hired advisors uh, as well as three distinct bondholder groups have formed to attempt to deal with this situation. Uh, so with that um, as, as a background, uh, Stephen, if you could provide us with, with a little bit more information about the company, uh, you know, particularly focus on the, um, what, what the capital structure uh, looks like and um, the assets, uh, you know, as I understand that there's really two main buckets of assets here, uh, what they call their legacy uh, and, and then the Fios, more um, also known as the, the CTF um, assets, which they purchased for Verizon. Yeah, of course, Mark. Um, As you mentioned, Frontier is a telecommunications company, so it provides internet, video, and voice services 
to both residential and commercial customers. Now, the company acquired, as you mentioned, the CTF assets from Verizon for about $10.5 billion. So it's a really large acquisition for the company. And in doing so, um, they acquired some uh, some very some good assets. Uh, they increased the fiber footprint of the company significantly. So they through those assets, they can offer higher speed fast internet and also um, some uh, broader video offerings to their customers. Now, the legacy assets that you mentioned are primarily copper-based, um, and some of the company's legacy presence in is, is in more rural areas of the country. So uh, they, you know, they're one of the only providers um, of those services in some of the areas that they operate. Um, and so you've seen this split in, in basically their asset base um, based on uh, the assets they acquired. And also the performance since the acquisition um, has varied between the two different asset buckets as well. Yes, that, that that's interesting. Want to go a little bit more into that the performance of the you know the, the different uh, buckets? If you could just um, you know talk to the last few quarters because you've definitely seen different trends, particularly in the last I think uh, one or two quarters uh, right. between the different assets. Right, that's right. Um, so you know, generally since the acquisition, you know, we're looking back to mid twenty sixteen, uh, Frontier has lost both residential and commercial customers uh, over that period. Now, the company has had elevated churn, so they've been losing uh, subscribers since the acquisition. And a lot of that had to do with what they um, characterized as, uh, as service problems, uh, integrating the service. Um, I think there were some outages during that period in some of the new areas. And also, they had some problems billing um, and some of the co- more back office support areas um, w- with some of their customers as well. And those issues um, you know, led to higher churn. Going into the acquisition, the legacy assets actually had, um, on the residential side, had gained customers on a net basis. Um, after the acquisition, you saw uh, both on the CTF assets and on the legacy side a pretty rapid loss of subscribers. Um, so from both, uh, you know, from both of those different buckets. Now, recently, and, and we're talking about um, you know more on the consumer side here. Um, which can be broken broken down more into into broadband and video. The companies constantly, uh, as many telecom companies have, has lost voice subscribers, um, which is kind of a natural decline of revenue as as different um, consumers switch to different types of technologies. Um, so that's been uh, kind of a headwind over time. But then also you're seeing this loss of both broadband and video subscribers. Um, now recently, as you mentioned or alluded to. In the last quarter, they did see an increase in um, FiOS subscriber additions, a net increase. So that's a very positive um, positive thing for them because that means that while they've been losing those FiOS subscribers since uh, since the acquisition, they finally have been able to, to have some positive growth in that area, despite the fact that on a net basis, their overall broadband subscribers did, did, did decrease, both uh, combining the legacy and the CTF side. But um, it's definitely been decreasing at a, at a lower rate overall, and now to that point where the file subscribers have actually increased on a net basis. In addition to that, the company's lost substantial video subscribers over that period, both in the legacy side, which was a much smaller offering, and also on the CTF side. Um, now that rate of decline, uh, of net decline, has also been um, declining itself, so they've, they've lost less and less subscribers on a net basis every quarter. Um, but those are both um, headwinds as far as uh, as far as their customer base goes. Um, now the effect of that is is interesting. 
Um, and we're still trying to kind of piece together some of the impacts, but you've also seen, um, and, and, and as, uh, as I mentioned before, the CTF assets um, provide a higher speed internet, more broad uh, video offerings. So the price point for those is naturally um, higher. Um, and so you, you've, seen, you've seen a different, the impact also on not only um, the how many customers the company's had, but also on the revenue per customer that they've been charging. And and then that's and that's really interesting because you know not only do those different uh, you know customers they affect revenue, but they also are going to affect um, EBITDA differently as well. And I know you've written you know a lot about that. Um, so you know as the mix changes uh, between broadband, video, legacy, FiOS, how does that affect uh, their bottom line? Yeah, you know it's it's an interesting question. Um, the impact as you know each different subscriber loss or addition has a different in- incremental impact on the company. And unfortunately, Frontier does not provide the level uh, of detail that we would you know we would all like uh, or here at, at Reorg um, to to really go through the incremental unit economics of different subscribers. But generally speaking, uh, we can gather some information from uh, certain statements from, from management. And also from looking at the numbers themselves. So as I mentioned before, there's been an ongoing loss of video subscribers as people transition to different technologies. Uh, the company is itself, uh, in general, has a high fixed cost for the business. Um, and, and the incremental or decremental margin can be very different for lost video subscribers versus broadband subscribers. So video revenues come, uh, as the company's outlined, with certain contact costs. So the, there's a reduced incremental margin for each um, dollar of revenue that's gained or, or lost, um, you, you know, people have been moving um, cord cutting, so they've been moving away from video services provided by some of these uh, some of these telecommunications companies. And so over time, um, it's been interesting because of that that incremental content cost. If you look, revenue video revenues for the company have gone down from 420 million at the time of the acquisition per quarter. To about three hundred ten million dollars this past quarter, but not all that loss has dropped to cash flow because of the decreased costs the company's seen as far as those content costs that are attached to that revenue. Um, so, as I mentioned, Frontier doesn't provide as much uh, incremental detail as we'd like on the unit economics, but we spent a lot of time looking at their various disclosures and trying to figure out as much information as possible. Um, management's also highlighted that incremental broadband revenues do have a much higher margin than those video revenues. They haven't outlined exactly what those might be. But I think it's interesting because they've lost so many subscribers in those CTF areas recently. And those are areas where the infrastructure for that Fios is actually already pretty much built out. So they're, I think one of the analogies management recently used was they'd be refilling the bucket by basically adding new subscribers in those areas. And so the incremental costs for those new additions could be relatively low. And so monitoring, that's why it's so important or could be potentially very important for the company. Um, th- th- this trend in uh, the last quarter where they saw a net addition of uh, Fios broadband subscribers because uh, you know these, the impact of losing lower margin video subscribers, losing lower price point legacy subscribers, and gaining higher price point Fios uh, broadband subscribers you know, that shifts what the margin profile on a variable basis looks like going forward. Now, the company, you know, as, as they've lost subscribers and revenue in general, the you know, and I mentioned before, they have a high fixed cost element to their cost structure. Um, 
operating leverage is going to you know is going to take an impact is going to is going to impact the company. Um, but I think it's interesting to look at what their incremental margin is uh, in these various business lines, and we're trying to piece through as much of that information as as possible from just different data points that the company's given over time. Great, and and uh, you know, looking at those incremental margins too, and, and analyzing um, the cost of build out, um, you know, whether that that's in front of them or, as you said, it's be actually could be behind them. You know, is really going to have an effect on cash, and that's you know, as a thinking about the capital structure, that's what we really care about. Um, you know, here how they're going to address it. So, you know, if you could summarize for us um, what state of cash flow is the company in right now? Yeah, I think you know, especially from a credit perspective. It's very interesting because, you know, the companies had this decline in subscribers, but they're generating a lot of cash. Um, and particularly since they decided, since management decided to cut the company's dividend, um, they were paying a relatively high dividend. And uh, in order to conserve cash, uh, they, they recently cut that. And, uh, you know, you can see just from, from looking at their financial statements and kind of going through <clears throat> capital expenditures, cash interest, you know, they pay a lot of cash interest every quarter, but... Uh, you know, on an LTM basis, they're still generating close to $700 million uh, of free cash flow. Um, so, the, the, you know, the cash generation is still relatively high despite this uh, subscriber loss. Great. And, and obviously, you know, that, that $700 million, um, you know, whether it stays there or goes down, still, like you said, a substantial number for them to address the, the capital structure in, in, in different ways. So, you know, let's let's look at that capital structure now. Um, you know, if you could, from a high-level um, perspective, break out for us, um, you know, what's um, what are the different uh, tranches here, first lane, second lane, unsecured. Uh, we talked about uh, those those different assets, which I know have different bonds associated with them, the CTF bonds. So when those mature, if you just provide some, you know, s- s- some information here on, um, on what this capital structure looks like. Sure. And the, and the capital structure in general is, has been changing um, a little bit. In the first quarter of the year, the company uh, issued some second lien notes and, and uh, went through a tender offer for some of their unsecured notes. So you can see that the, the capital structure is, is shifting uh, on a quarterly basis and trying to understand and predict those changes is important, um, especially from, uh, from an unsecured creditor perspective um, as we, we discuss this, um, and, and particularly depending on how the company's operations trend. Uh, because you know the way, the way we look at it or the way I see it is that you know, there are a couple ways for the company to um, emerge from this leverage profile. One's through operations, uh, turning around operations. One's through selling assets, which uh, they've been linked to in uh, various stories, which, um, you know, the viability or the, the possibility of that um, is can be debated. Um, and then also through different capital structure transactions, uh, attempting to delever um, through through those transactions. But looking at the capital structure itself, the company has about $3.5 billion of first lien debt. Uh, as I mentioned, the company issued uh, new, second lien notes, new second lien notes during the first quarter, about $1.6 billion of those notes. The company also has $850 million of subsidiary debt. Um, and then also, uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch, uh, a number of different uh, tranches of, of senior notes that mature at, uh, at various years. That uh, they're unsecured. So, in, in all, the company has uh, there's, there's about 12 billion of those. So, the company has about 17, uh, 17.8 billion, as you mentioned, close to 8 bi- 18 billion of uh, of total debt in its capital structure. 
Um, and the maturities for those uh, are, are hundreds of millions of dollars every year at least. Um, I think next year, during 2018, uh, through 2018, the rest of it, we have about $600 million. Or Frontier has about $600 million uh, of debt maturing, including amortization on their um, on their secured debt. Next year, there's about $800 million uh, of debt maturing, and then followed by $430 million. The biggest maturities come then in 2021 and 2022. The company, uh, as I mentioned, went through that tender offer and recently pushed back some of the um, the earlier dated or short dated uh, unsecured maturities um, effectively by uh, offering those new second lien notes and paying down um, tendering for for those uh, unsecured notes, uh, and they successfully pushed back some of those maturities. But still, in 2021, the company has 1.6 billion dollars uh, of, of debt coming due, and then uh, the tw- in 2022, they have you know more than two and a half billion dollars um, uh, coming due as well. So. Those are really the, the the major maturity walls that we're seeing, and you, you mentioned the CTF notes. Um, that that really has to do with uh, some of the financing for that acquisition. So there, uh, you know, one one th- a series of notes uh, in particular was a ten and a half percent senior notes due twenty twenty two that the company issued. Um, when there's you know two point two billion of those that are maturing in twenty twenty two, that's one significant hurdle for them. There's also uh, some 11% senior notes due 2025, uh, $3.6 billion of those, and uh, some some nearer dated notes that they've already started to, to, to take care of um, through these transactions. Great. Thanks. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's funny. Sometimes, you know, if you look at the, the pricing of bonds, it's a good indicator of um, what, uh, what, what the situation is. And, you know, you talked about those different uh, bond maturities, uh, the significant ones, um, you know, bumping up um, in 2021 and then even higher in 2022. Uh, and, and plus, I know, you know, you just put out a report uh, looking at their cash flows as well that says um, if the company continues to or, or if the company will uh, pay off um, their their maturities using cash on hand, you do run into potentially some liquidity issues um, in that 20. 2021 or so um, time frame, and sure enough, when you look at bond prices, when you look at you know where they're indicated, uh, 2023 after that wall is where you see uh, the, the step down um, or the big drop in in where bond prices are indicated. So you know, surely that's that's where the um, the you know the, the period is. So you know, Dan, I want to now uh, you know turn to you. I'm I'm sorry to uh, to keep you waiting, uh, but if um, you know, this seems like the perfect point to the perfect time to talk about what do they plan on doing. You know, what 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 are some of the options um, that they have? Uh, the company has has certainly left a number of options on the table in, in addressing their capital structure. Um, you know, so if we start with um, you know what's the total capacity uh, that they have in, in doing um, secure debt, if that's the the, the way they go, and um, and how does it change uh, with what's um, you know you you've spoken a lot about um, this acquisition liens basket as as well, which which potentially be added to it. Yeah, sure, Mark. Uh, happy to chat about that. So I guess the short answer on the company's secure debt capacity is that um, they might not have any secure debt capacity at this point um, under their debt documents. But it's a complicated situation. So the longer answer is that the company's capacity um, is complicated and whether the company currently uh, has any capacity may turn on the use of this acquisitions liens basket that you mentioned. If the company can use those baskets, its secure debt capacity um, likely would be substantially increased. 
So I guess, uh, as Stephen had talked about before, Frontier's capital structure is uh, complicated. The company has bank debt in a variety of notes. Um, from a covenant's perspective, it's also important to distinguish between what we like to call the Verizon notes, those notes incurred as part of the CTF acquisition, and the older notes, those notes that were outstanding prior to the CTF acquisition. There's other debt as well, as uh, Stephen talked about, I guess notably some of the notes issued by subsidiaries, the recently issued second lien notes, and certain notes due in 20, 2031. Um, and we're going to set those aside for this conversation because I think the most important notes to talk about are the Verizon notes and the older notes. As Rear Covenants has written about, um, considering the company's fourth quarter financials, if the company does not rely on the acquisition's liens baskets, the older notes may no longer permit any more secure debt. Meanwhile, under the other debt documents, um, including the bank debt and the Verizon notes, um, those may permit, uh, permit a significant um, amount of additional first lien or junior lien debt, um, depending on what document you're looking at. Um, but altogether, those may permit up to what we're figuring as uh, 800 million of first lien, and then potentially another 400 million of junior lien. Again, this is all setting aside the acquisitions liens basket, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, however, I guess the company, um, if the company does decide to rely on its acquisitions liens basket in its notes to incur additional secure debt, um, the picture changes substantially. Secure debt capacity under the older notes would dramatically increase, and capacity under the Verizon notes may uh, slightly increase as well. In this case, the older notes could wind up uh, permitting more than $10 billion of additional secure debt and clearly would not be a limiting factor for future debt transactions. Under this latter scenario, the company could decide to target its Verizon notes, um, both because the 10.5s represent a significant maturity wall in 2022, um, as we've been discussing, but also because getting rid of all the Verizon notes could also have the effect of unlocking even more secure debt capacity under the remaining debt. On the other hand, there are some other older notes due in 21 and 22 too, um, and depending on sort of secure debt capacity under the Verizon notes, the company may want to target those or may be forced to target those instead. Great. So, so you, you talked about the older notes and um, uh, releasing uh, this potentially $10 billion of, um, of secure debt um, capacity here. So is it safe to say the CTF bonds do not have um, this, this acquisition lien basket um, in them? Is, is, that the, is that the difference? Well, the CTF notes um, or the Verizon notes and the older notes, they both have acquisition liens baskets, but those baskets are structured a bit differently. Um, so potentially the older notes, uh, because, because the way the acquisitions liens basket works, um, they could permit, uh, substantially more than the acquisitions liens baskets under the Verizon notes. Um, it, it, while the baskets are similar, there are very different outcomes, um, under the sort of a broader interpretation. I see. So, um, so, so let's dig into this then, this acquisition liens basket, um, you know, uh, just if you could discuss the basket, uh, you know, more and, and explain what it seems like is pretty controversial. So explain the controversy over it. Yeah, sure. Happy to chat about that. Um, we, we've definitely uh, talked to people on both sides of the argument. Um, and I think that 
the company, um, you know, it's obviously in the company's benefit uh, for a broad interpretation of this basket where they could potentially have, uh, you know, a, a much more increased, uh, an increased amount of secure debt. Um, uh, but obviously that could be to the detriment of um, note holders. But so I, I, to keep it s simple, um, under an arguably sort of plain text, broad interpretation of this basket, um, it could permit the company to incur liens up to an amount equal to the value of assets and businesses acquired since a certain date. That certain date is the issue date in most cases, though, though that date varies depending on the series of notes. So this is sort of why there's a difference between the, uh, the Verizon notes and the older notes. Under the older notes, since the company acquired the CTF assets after those notes were issued, the liens basket sort of gets um, increased by the, 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 you know, the CTF acquisition itself, leading to the acquisitions liens basket under these older notes, um, potentially permitting over $10 billion of debt secured by liens. The Verizon notes in this case would permit secured debt equal to whatever assets were acquired after the CTF transaction, so they don't get the benefit of that $10 billion sort of, you know, the, the large CTF transaction. But um, as you hinted at, I guess use of the acquisitions liens basket in this fashion is controversial, and, and it could be risky for the company for that reason. I guess without getting into too much detail, arguably, instead of permitting debt secured by liens equal to all the assets acquired past a certain date, a more conservative interpretation of the basket may be that it only permits liens securing financings that are used to acquire assets up to an amount equal to the actual asset acquisition cost. The result of this conservative interpretation would be, as mentioned earlier, that uh, the company likely would have minimal secure debt capacity under the older notes, since this basket may not permit much additional secure debt. In short, a lot is riding on the use of this basket, but the correct, uh, the correct interpretation of it um, remains somewhat unclear. God, it's really interesting. Um, you know, has the company given any hint as to whether or not they intend to use this acquisition liens basket? Yeah, so that's interesting as well. In March, Reorg reported that the company suggested that it did plan to use the basket, and then it was taking the view that the basket should be interpreted broadly. I guess, however, that changed in April when a group of holders um, sent a letter to the company. Uh, I think that group was, uh, was uh, held some of the older notes. And that letter, in that letter, they disagreed with the company's broader interpretation of the acquisition's liens basket. We haven't seen a public response from the company since that letter. So at this point, I think the company's intentions with respect to the basket are also a bit unclear. All right, great. I, I guess it's just a, a wait and see approach here. But, uh, you know, of course, we'll try and uh, dig in and um, maybe uh, figure out what they plan on doing, uh, since it's certainly a big issue here going forward. So, um, you know, Dan, Stephen, thank you so much. Um, this, you know, this has been uh, really helpful. Um, appreciate the time. And uh, Teresa, back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Teresa Lee, and this has been The Week in Reorg. 